0: Mm -hmm. Bush and Bin Laden, you think they're foes, they're in business together Danny Bush knows the Carlisle Group since years before Been raking in billions and itching for more It's It's blood for for oil
1: is Code Pink by Emma's Revolution. I'm Leonardo Flores of Code Pink. Welcome to our Code Pink radio show presented by WBAI in New York City and WPFW in Washington, D.C. The first half of the program features a discussion between Natalia Cardona of 350.org and Garrett Ruppenhagen of Veterans for Peace about climate change and militarism. On the second half of the show, Terry and I will discuss Ecuador's April 11th elections. But first, some news. In Colombia, Sandra Liliana Peña, the governor of an indigenous reservation in Cauca in the country's southwest coast, was murdered on Tuesday, marking the 52nd assassination of a social leader in the country this year. Days earlier, Peña had rejected the growing of illicit crops in the area and blamed illegal armed actors. It is the 1,166th murder of a social leader since the signing of the peace accords in 2016. Latest polls in Peru show left-wing candidate Pedro Castillo up by 11 points over his rival Keiko Fujimori, daughter of the country's former dictator Alberto Fujimori. Castillo has promised to defend the country's natural resources from transnational corporations and is proposing a national constituent assembly to redraft Peru's constitution. In a video posted online, Castillo, a teacher and organizer, promised that the people will rule should he be elected. In St. Vincent and the Grenadines, the number of people displaced by the eruption of La Sufria volcano continues to grow. The volcano continues erupting with little to no warning, leading to dangerous explosions and greater ashfall. Prime Minister Ralph Gonsalves asked the international community to make that generous donations. Please help St. Vincent and the Grenadines in its midnight hour, Gonsalves pleaded at a UN National Security Council meeting. Venezuela and the World Food Programme reached an agreement focusing on children's nutrition. This is an important step towards overcoming the worst impacts of the criminal, human rights-violating U.S. sanctions. The U.S. State Department welcomed the deal, but failed to acknowledge that the suffering of ordinary Venezuelans as caused by Trump administration sanctions that the Biden administration has so far refused to lift. Today is Earth Day, so I'm very pleased to present Natalia Cardona, Associate Director for Justice and Equity at 350.org, and Garrett Ruppenhagen, Executive Director of Veterans for Peace, in a discussion that was moderated by Code Pink's Nancy Winograd for our weekly Code Pink Congress event about climate change and militarism.
2: Thank you so much. It's really nice to be here. I'm originally from Guatemala, where we felt a lot of the impact of US military foreign policy. And it's one of the reasons why the civil war lasted so long and a genocide occurred in my home country. So I'm often looking at different policies from the perspective of how military foreign policy in the United States impacts our work. And uh, in, in the US, uh, 350 has just started to look at the increasing militarization of um, climate policy. And we're just following the issue right now Um, under the guise of making it a national security issue, which we all know and and understand in Central America and in South America, when something becomes a national security issue, it becomes an issue that's actually, the response to it will be um, significantly militarized and highly violent. Um, So that's become a concern for us. And I know under Trump, uh, many environmentalists thought that the fact that the army was able to speak about climate change in its uh, reports was a good thing. But um, what that actually means is that uh, both Trump and other administrations, other democratic administrations, have all been united in uh, looking at climate policy as something that should be dealt as as a military issue and not as an issue of human rights or an issue of human security. Unfortunately, when our country speaks of national security, they speak of of militarization. Uh, and that's, um, that's just what we've seen throughout history. Um, so I'm just going to talk about the present and a little bit about some, some of the main um, events around how we've seen climate policy become more militarized. Uh, as we all know, in the first month of the Biden presidency, there was a lot of climate action um, and a lot of sweeping away of the openly denialist um, intransigence of the Trump administration. Um, but and after re-entering the Paris Agreement and canceling KXL pipeline on day one, um, which we were all very happy about it and elated. President Biden then actually rolled out an array of climate-related executive orders, calling on all agencies to factor climate into their work. Top among them was in order to center the climate crisis in US foreign policy and national security. Um, that um, that executive order actually went with, with very much unnoticed, um, both within the movement and, and, and in the media. Um, And part of this order um, actually orders (laughs) officials from across more than a dozen intelligence agencies, including the CIA, to produce a national intelligence estimate over the next next four months, well, those four months are almost over, (laughs) Uh, on the national and economic security impacts of climate change. This high-level analysis is designated as, um, is supposed to designate significant threats to the United States as it relates to, uh, climate change. Um, And the process actually can lead to unlocking huge amount of resources from across agencies if so-called serious risks are identified. And what we've been noticing is that, and we've seen throughout the years, is that largely any meaningful response, any, any response, not necessarily meaningful, excuse me, to climate change has been as a security issue. And we don't have to look too far to see some of these examples. Uh, In Texas, where there were power failures recently uh, because of of the rolling state uh, blackouts because of a major cold snap uh, that left millions without heat and electricity, Uh, the governor, without having any uh, ability to do anything else or call on any other agency, called the National Guard to respond to that. Um, This is increasingly of concern, particularly because undocumented people who are first responders and are most impacted by climate change um, and LGBTQI folks who, um, and transgender folks, particularly who are most impacted by, you know, militarism and police violence, um, won't go to access resources if they're being provided by folks uh, with guns and, and military um, uniforms. Also, um, what we find is that the military is just not equipped to deal with the kinds of things that are happen during climate impacts. Um, Still, we do think that climate change should be taken seriously as a foreign policy issue. But unfortunately, the way that the US government and this administration is framing and and driving the policy is um, in framing it as national security issue, it's really about militarizing a response. And it raises the risk of more war and instability. Uh, it's, mo- it's most urgent to build cooperation and international so- solidarity. That's necessary for the green, for a green, green global economy and collective survival. Uh, just one last thing: uh, the U.S. military itself is a massive greenhouse polluter, and has over 800 o- overseas military bases, many of which are increasingly at risk for climate change. And they should also be prompted to make. Um, a change in the way that they operate in relationship to fossil fuels. Thank you, Marcy. Thank you, Natalia. Uh, so I'd like to welcome Garrett Rippenhagen.
3: Awesome. Thank you, Miguel. Thank you, Code Pink. Yeah, Veterans for Peace has been working with, uh, you know, trying to address climate change for, for a while and the connections with militarism. And, uh, you know, it's, it's been a long road for me, honestly. I didn't come out uh, of the military as an environmentalist right away. Um, you know, it's uh, kind of coming to terms with my military service and really the, the moral injury that I incurred from perpetrating so much violence on people overseas is what made an activist out of me. Um, trying to find a way to mitigate some of the harm that I did um, you know, turned me into an anti-war activist first. And uh, I was the first active duty member of Iraq Veterans Against the War while I still was serving as a sniper overseas and uh, barely got that honorable discharge. I was under investigation for uh, the ways I was protesting already uh, within the military and in my GI resistance. And, uh, you know, after years of working with Iraq Veterans Against the War and Veterans for Peace, um, I almost became totally disillusioned with the peace movement because. There's so many uh, root foundations of why we perpetuate war in the world. And, uh, you know, I felt like at the time we were doing a lot of activism on the street, a lot of just protest um, mobilizations. And, uh, you know, I I felt powerless in a lot of ways, even marching with hundreds of thousands of people in Washington, D.C., I felt powerless. Um, And the realities that, you know, I was coming to terms with is the fact that I went to war for oil. And I went to war for capitalism and uh, the military industrial complex, and I needed to find ways that I could uh, penetrate those foundations that supported war. And uh, that's why I started becoming an environmentalist and environmental activist. Um, And I worked for a long time. Uh, I created an organization called Veterans Green Jobs, helping veterans get plugged into green opportunities uh, to get retrained. Uh, to, to work in solar fields and, and wind turbines and um, you know wilderness uh, restoration operations. And uh, that was really rewarding, um, but I wasn't addressing the policies. Um, so I started working for uh, uh, vote vets. It, it was their C3 operation um, Vet Voice Foundation. And I was able to actually uh, work on policy conservation and get active in Washington, D.C. and become a lot more educated on these issues. Um, and it's funny you bring up the, the Arctic because one of my uh, uh, pivotal experiences um, was I was able to take a canoe trip, a 13-day canoe trip down the Canning River in the Arctic. And uh, it's the border of the Arctic Wildlife Refuge. And, uh, on the last day when we reached the, uh, Arctic sea, uh, you could actually see point Thompson, which is a massive, uh, oil drilling operation, uh, just on the horizon. And you could stand within the Arctic national wildlife refuge and, uh, see this, this massive thing They have, uh, two flights a day coming in and out of this facility to bring workers back and forth. And, uh, you know, they're drilling and doing seismic testing in the, in the Arctic. And, uh, I'm standing there looking at point Thompson on the horizon and in the the beach sand right in front of me is a, a footprint of a polar bear. And, uh, you know, at first I was a little excited and then a little scared because there was a polar bear right there. And, uh, you know, uh, then I, I was just, uh, filled with this, uh, sadness um it was it was july if if if, in fact it was july 5th the day after fourth of july we spent the fourth of july up there in the arctic and uh it was too early for polar bears to be on land um they're they're normally still is ice flow and they're usually out in in the bay uh hunting seals and here was evidence of a a footprint of a polar bear that was already starving um in july and um getting ready to go through a very, very difficult summer. And the damage that was causing this was, was now right there. It was living in the shadow of the thing that was doing the, the incredible amount of damage. And, and I know from somebody who fought in a war for oil, um, that wherever there's uh, natural resource production, the military follows. Um, you know, we, we talk a lot about, um, the emissions of the military and how bad it is. But I think some of those points that uh, uh, Natalia and uh, Medea mentioned is that uh, our military reinforces uh, extractive colonialism. It reinforces exploiting uh, vulnerable nations, uh, mostly in the global south. And uh, it reinforces the transportation, the protection of transportation of fossil fuels and it trains people in the school of americas to go back to their countries mostly in the global south and uh to to punish and hurt and suppress and oppress uh indigenous and community resistance against fossil fuel production and against colonialism and uh those things would not be possible without the u.s military support and uh you know i was a member of this operation in a way um and uh you know it's it's tragic i think that that any environmentalist has to also be a, a peace activist and any environmentalist and peace activist also has to be an anti-capitalist and you know if we're going to survive uh this at all we have to understand the the intersections of these movements and how they're all the same and how we're all fighting together and we have to break down national boundaries You know, corporations have no problem reaching across the world and finding cheap labor and exploiting resources in other countries. And if we can't figure out a way to break our nationalism and and our ethnocentrism and work with communities all over the world uh, and follow their lead and learn from them and and figure out how we can take part in their resistance, um, I think we're gonna fail and we're just gonna keep failing.
1: How do we link militarism with climate change?
2: I can start. I think if we don't make those connections, they're going to get made for us. <laughs> they're already being made. Um, if we see the increased uh, militarization at the border, you know, my home country, the impacts of climate change are very severe, along with other US foreign policies. Guatemala is one of the least responsible for producing carbon emissions, but it's one of the most impacted. Um, drought has hit the region. If you ask uh, people migrating, um, They might not necessarily understand climate change, but they understand that the patterns for growing corn, beans are changing and they're unable to do that because the seasons are just so completely unpredictable. Um, And the increased militarization at the border uh, goes in tandem with both climate change, but also the impacts of US foreign military policy in my country. So um, I think we're seeing that in other places as well as Europe, I'll pass it to you Garrett.
3: Yeah, I think, I think that's real. Like, uh, you know, those, those connections will be made for us. Um, you know, the reason why most Americans, uh, many Americans, uh, don't feel this right now is because we live in, in privilege and luxury. Most of us, not everybody, obviously there's many vulnerable communities inside the United States that are feeling the impacts, but, uh, most of us live in a bubble, protected bubble. Uh, Provided by the U.S. military and our corporations uh, by exploiting other nations and making sure that we don't feel those uh, the weight of 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 the the crisis that is upon us. Um, But I mean, the reality is, you know, a lot of the a lot of the world population lives in the coast that's going to be affected by sea level rise. Um, We're going to see more famine, more disease. Um, You know, we're going to see a lot of lot of refugees moving. Uh, because of climate and because of the war created by a scarcity of resources. And uh, those are going to be people that are going to be crossing uh, ethnic boundaries or religious boundaries. That's going to create a lot of friction, a lot of violence. Um, you're going to see uh, even nuclear-powered states that are going to become failed states. And, uh, you know, nuclear weapons are going to fall in the wrong hands. So in the two pivotal things that could be, uh, you know, ultimate life threatening for all human life on this planet, our nuclear weapons and climate, uh, they're both interconnected. You know, we're going to see the U S military needing to respond more and more all over the world, or maybe not need to, but they're going to respond all over the world. Uh, and uh, you know, this, this is just going to be a growing problem and it's a positive feedback loop, loop that uh, will will just be out of control. We have to make changes now. We have to make changes yesterday to stop it from happening. Um, you know, really, it's it's going to happen. All we can do is mitigate how how severe that damage is. And uh, and trust me, we need to do everything we can.
1: Do you think the Green New Deal does enough to incorporate our call for demilitarism?
2: Well, the Green New Real, New Deal is just a resolution, right? Um, there are different. Um, it, it really is. Is, is a really broad resolution. I think that's trying to get at a, at a humanitarian response rather than a militarized response to climate change, which is the great thing about it. Um, it's really an aspirational more resolution as I see it from my perspective, maybe not other environmentalists, but that's how I see it. Um, and I think we can draw a lot from it. I think the challenges are that I I feel like it's really risky. Uh, uh, Some of the strategies that the climate movement are taking are are a little bit risky, I would say. Um, Particularly this focus on uh, climate emergency, because generally when we talk about emergencies in the United States, the response is always a militarized one, right? If we look at the drug war, which is the closest thing that I can look at in comparison to what's happening with climate policy right now, Um, this could be the war on climate change, you know, and it could easily just be like a supplantation of, um, policies that really, um, in the end end up impacting black and brown people in the global South and black and brown people living in some of the most precarious regions of the United States, including the Southern Corridor. Um, so... Yeah, and just to be clear, we don't currently have a climate and militarism campaign. My work right now, it's really in a small group of um, nonprofit organizations that have been looking at different pieces of uh, US policy. And um, my work has been really, uh, right now, is being done very much in, a, in a clo- under closed doors to, uh, because we're just still trying to grasp what this looks like for climate policy. Um, And also because I come from the peace movement. American Foreign Service Committee was where I sort of grew up in my activism. Um, So I'm a peace advocate from the onset and um, can read between the lines with these policies that are coming down through Biden.
3: Yeah, I think think in activism, we always uh, sometimes have a bad habit of having this all or nothing policy. and, uh, you know, we don't, we don't try to achieve those small steps to, to get to our, our end result, you know? And we could work on those small steps and still work on the big thing. It's not a compromise. It's just uh, we're working on the small pieces, um, but it's, it's intimidating to go after the military. And we see a lot of laws get pushed forward. If you look at like the carbon tax, uh, you know, laws, um, they have exclusions of the military because they know that they could more successfully get this passed if they don't have to fight against the DOD at the same time. Um, So that's a shame. So we're still out there asking for, you know, not to have exemptions for the military, but you know, if it passes, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to poo poo it and say, Oh, we, you know, we shouldn't have passed the carbon tax uh, laws because it didn't include the military. We just also keep on working on getting the military from the exclusion. So um, you know, we can ha- can we have a better green new deal? Of course we can. Um, but we got to also work in the realities of what, where Congress is at. And, uh, you know, I think what happens on Capitol Hill and what we see in our communities is very different. So, you know, we organize where we're at around the people that are, are, are stepping up to do the work. And that's, I think what the green new deal is right now.
1: What's the alternative to the involvement of the military in human- humanitarian responses to climate emergencies?
2: This is the same question that abolitionists come up with, uh, come up against all the time, which is, what's the alternative to the police? There's lots of alternatives, right? Um, people who are displaced a lot of the climate impacts are actually gonna be felt by people who are internally displaced in this country. And people have not yet realized how many millions of people will be and are are already being internally displaced. If you think about Katrina, if you think about the wildfires a couple summers ago on the West Coast, if you think about uh, the cold snap, uh, not just in Texas, but Mississippi and other Southern states, all of those things contribute to displacement internally. And those people, don't need an army coming in. What they need is mental health. We know that violence against women increases during climate impacts and disasters, and uh, violence against women and girls. We need people who can address that. Uh, we need people who can um, be there to provide services, including food and warmth and housing, right? Building housing in quick quickly. So, um, you know, uh, I think that, that there's so many similarities that, that, we, that I can think of in terms of like, what do we do if we abolish the police? There's so many other services that people are needing that they often call the police for. And these governments, these governors and other representatives are calling the military in because they don't have a public institution, a Green core of sorts that can be available to respond during climate disasters.
4: All right. I don't know if there's another question. Maybe you can uh, or or give uh, Garrett and Natalia an
2: opportunity just to say some last thoughts. Because- I
3: used to feel people didn't take action based on fear of the consequences, whether it was you know social or political or prison. Obviously, the more vulnerable community you are, the more risk you have uh, taking the streets, especially with new laws being formed every day to protect pipelines and other things like that. But Um, You know, I think the biggest turnoff and why people don't organize is because they don't think they'll be effective. And, uh, you know, I think that folks don't want to spend their time, their energy, their resources, and obviously risk arrest or or worse um, if they don't think that they can make change. Um, So I think we've got to start, you know, building a movement that's uh, celebrating our small victories and organizing around that. I think we have to create uh, a community and a culture that we want to, we want to save that's built off of uh, joy and friendship and, and solidarity um, so that we're, we're a strong community first. And when we need to take action, we take action as friends and family. And uh, you know, I think people will be more motivated to get involved and to participate if that's the case.
2: Yeah. Yeah yeah i, I want to echo that i agree i think the the culture of our movements is so important to feeling to making everyone feel invited i think at some point or another some of us didn't know all the things that we know now and we have to make room for folks who are activated and want to do something particularly around climate issues most americans want to see national legislation on climate so there's a lot of americans that might not be taking um action right now, but we could you know, invite and mobilize by creating movements that are really uh, making themselves available to the people, to all the people. Um, I am heartened right now by the youth movements, the youth movements that have made the Green New Deal such a, a, a conversation, that have made it a thing that actually might, we might be able to achieve in different ways. Um, whether it's Sunrise, Friday for Futures, uh, Climate Strikers. Um, and I'm really heartened by the type of solidarity that they have amongst each other, the type of ways in which they see each other across race and culture. Um, and I have a lot of hope for this generation. I have a daughter that is that, that around that age that I just think about, like, what was I thinking about at that age? And she's just so articulate. I'm going to brag on her. <laughs> I hope she's not watching. Uh, but um, but yeah, I'm heartened by that. And I think that for for the conversations around the climate and military policy, I would really love to see um, peace organizations, Veterans for Peace, Code Pink, and, and climate organizations, Greenpeace, 350, Sierra Clubs coming together and having small strategy sessions to think through what's happening right now and really working together. I think that that could be a step that could get us begin to move the needle a little bit in terms of solidarity across movements, which I really believe in. Great, thank you.
1: I'd like to thank Natalia Cardona and Garrett Reppenhagen for that discussion on climate change and militarism. You are listening to Code Pink Radio, coming to you through Pacifica Radio's WPFW in Washington, D.C., and WBAI in New York City. We'll be back after this break with a discussion on Ecuador's elections. marabu with bomba caliente out of ecuador welcome back i'm leonardo flores of code pink you are listening to code pink radio presented by wbai in new york city and wpfw in washington dc up next is a conversation between terry matson and i about ecuador's april 11th elections
4: today we are speaking with you live from quito ecuador and i am joined by code pink's leonardo flores leonardo and i are both um, latin america campaign coordinators for Code Pink, and we are currently in Quito, um, having uh, served as international election observers on Sunday, April 11th, which was the second round of presidential elections, second and final round of the presidential elections here in Ecuador. It was a runoff between the neoliberal candidate Guillermo Lasso and the Citizens Revolution candidate Andres Arauz. Results were masso fifty two point five one percent aroused forty seven point four nine percent. So welcome Leo. Let's talk a little bit about what happened on Sunday.
1: Thanks Terry. It's good to be here. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, as a Code Pink delegation, electoral observer observation delegation, we didn't witness any sort of irregularities and nothing major, of course. Uh, I would say that the vote itself on Sunday and the vote count on on Sunday, April eleventh, uh, was fair. You know, there was no fraud involved at all on that day. The problem, of course, comes before the vote uh, in the months leading up to up to the you know first round and, and then in between the first and second rounds. There were many things that were that were indicative of a, an unevil, uneven playing field between the, the various candidates. And I think that really is the determining factor in the loss for Andres sadaos of the progressive UNES party. Um, otherwise, I think he, he might have been able to win.
4: So UNES is a, is a new party, or basically a coalition of parties. Um, Arauz uh, is, was running as um, an inheritor of Correismo, or Rafael, President Rafael Correa's um, Citizens Revolution project uh, for development of the people of Ecuador versus the capitalists of Ecuador. And I I, I totally agree with you. There was a lot, the the elections on Sunday were very clean. It was a very normal, peaceful election process. But of course, there's all the intangible things, all the campaign issues, all the lawfare issues that observers are not witness to on the actual day of election. So all those factors that run up Um, to the day of election, all those factors that comprise who candidates can and cannot be and what their campaign looks like. So with Arauz, he was denied the use of Correa's image uh, during the campaign. Um, Correa himself was denied running as Arauz's vice president and um, Correa's party, Alianza Pais, no longer exists. And so UNES was created so there would for our for our um, viewers, for our audience, there's um, a lot of background that led up to the results. And in I think in one way, I think you would agree with this. In one way, it's amazing what Arouse was able to accomplish since last fall. Forty-seven percent with all those strikes against him, and yet um, let's so let's talk a little bit about. Yeah, I mean, I think that. to
1: understand the results. Was- To understand the results we actually have to go back four years to 2017 when again Guillermo Lazo was the candidate and the candidate for Correismo, this movement behind former president Rafael Correa, who was in power for 10 years 2007 to 2017. He brought economic growth to Ecuador, political stability. Prior to Correa, Ecuador had had seven presidents in 10 years and an economy that was so battered that you saw massive amounts of migration outside of Ecuador. So Moreno is kind of seen as the inheritor of this movement, Correismo, but as soon as he wins those elections, it becomes a total bait and switch, almost like a silent coup. Mm -hmm. And and what happened was that Moreno basically adopted all of the policies and programs that were put forward by his opponent in those same elections, Guillermo Lasso. So he starts this kind of neoliberal uh, push and a push for austerity, and he begins destroying the institutions that had been recreated during the Correa years. And you know the first thing, the, one of the first whistleblowers of, of everything was uh, the vice president Jorge Glass. He blows the whistle. He says, "Look, the president is now on the side of the bankers. He's completely betrayed the people's movement. Uh, and and for his for doing this, for taking his stance." Jorge Glass is one of the first people to face political persecution in this country under the Moreno government, and he's still in jail today. He's one of the most important political prisoners in Latin America, only we don't hear much about him. And then the the campaign against Jorge Glass, then it becomes expanded to and they start going after other leaders of Correismo, including Rafael Correa himself, who has something like 30 cases uh, pending against them. Uh, I mean, some of them are totally absurd. And one of them, he's accused of psychic corruption, or excuse me, psychic influence. Influence, Psychic influence to make make other people corrupt. And so that's kind of the lead up to these elections uh, where you had this betrayal of the citizen's revolution, as the Correismo is also called, by Lenin Moreno, who adopts all of, uh, of Guillermo Lazo's policies. And then in October 2019, the people couldn't take it anymore. There was a massive uprising in Ecuador that was brutally repressed by Naming Moreno, eleven people died, uh, and Guillermo Lasso, you know, cheered this on. And when the, the main kind of the, the spark that lit the flame was a, a, an elimination of fuel subsidies stemming from a deal w- for, with the IMF that kind of harkens back to the days of the Washington Consensus with off- imposed austerity and deregulation and really uh, an eroding of labor rights. And so, yeah, as you said, you know, Correismo tried to recover from this. They put forward this really young candidate. Andres Arauz, who's 36 years old, but he's also a brilliant economist. He had already been director of the central bank. Uh, He was one of the people kind of responsible for the the way that Ecuador had managed to uh, weather the storm of the collapse in oil prices in 2015 because 50% of Ecuador's revenue comes from oil. Um, So as you said, the actual original party, Alianza Pais, was no longer there. They tried to create a new party, but were f- refused by the CNE. Then they finally kind of uh, got this small party to adopt Andres, Arre- Andres Arauz as the as the candidate. Uh, and the, the, the kind of lawfare and the campaign, you know, ugliness to stop there. There was so much fake news going against Andres Arauz. He was accused of wanting to de-dollarize Ecuador. Ecuador has been using the U.S. dollar for about 20 years. It was the only thing that stabilized the economy. And Arauz understands this and he kind of supports this. He, you know, there are pros and cons, but it has stabilized Ecuador's economy. There was also this crazy allegation that Andres Arauz is financed by left-wing guerrillas in Colombia. Uh, This was disproved by an ornithologist because they used this video that was very obviously uh, taped in Southern Ecuador where this bird lives that doesn't live in, in Colombia and an ornithologist picked it out of the video, uh, these sounds and kind of uh, destroyed that narrative. But I think the damage was done, uh, especially because there were, you know, the, the media here in Ecuador is totally corporate and it was t- completely on the side of the banker, Guillermo Lasso, who's one of the richest people in the country. And, and Arauz didn't really have a fair shot uh, going into these elections.
4: So Arouse, let's talk a little bit about who Andres Arouse is, because you and I went to a uh, rally uh, thir- last Thursday evening, which was, Thursday was the last legal day to campaign. And we went to basically a closing rally for the Arouse campaign and talked to a lot of people there. One of the, one of the gentlemen I spoke with, uh, older, my age, older, <laughs> and um, he, one of the, Key enticements for voting for Arouse for him was the fact that the candidate was 36 years old. That was and an economist. Both of those things it was so the youth, the young, representing a new generation, new face, new uh, approach to things was very appealing to a lot of people. And yet this older neoliberal banker who has run now three, four times and finally won. Uh, is going to be the new president of Ecuador.
1: Yeah, and I think uh, as observers, we talked to a lot of voters after they, they voted, and to kind of hear out what you know what how they felt about these elections. First of all, nobody has confidence in in Ecuador's electoral system. Uh, voter after voter said, you know, oh, I'm going to I'm voting for Lasso. I mean, we were in a heavily Lasso area. They said I'm going to vote for Lasso, but I think they're going to steal the elections from us. Uh, and and uh, you know, yeah, and, and voters also talked about they, g- they were going to vote for Lasso because he represented change. And that was really striking to me because Lasso has basically been the shadow president for the past four years. So the Lasso campaign managed to make it seem like Moreno was actually a continuation of Correa and that Arauz would be a continuation of Moreno. And Moreno was widely, wildly unpopular. He has somewhere between four to 7% approval ratings. Uh, so that was a kind of a really big deal that that the Lasso campaign was able to distance itself from Moreno and actually push Arauz and, and kind of wed him to Moreno. And that's the, uh, really a result, of, as I was mentioning earlier, of this, uh, the, of, the, of, the, of the work the media done, had done, the corporate media. And social media as well, really. I mean, in the days, you know, just prior to the election, uh, a lasso and lasso talking points were trending here in Ecuador and there was very little to suggest that uh, you know, had even had a major media social media presence and really I think that's part of a, kind of these troll farms that we've been seeing employed by right-wing uh, you know, politicians throughout Latin, Latin America you know, whether it's Facebook, Twitter or other social media accounts that they have you know, basically these centers with uh, you know, base- bots basically you know, pushing their, the- this narrative. Uh, and so I think Lasso was able to capitalize quite a bit on that, and, uh, and that House, uh, you know, uh, unfortunately their campaign didn't have an answer.
4: So let, let's let's talk about um, two things. What what did you and I hear? Uh, we attended a lot of auxiliary meetings. We were we attended a lot of formal um, CNE meetings, uh, basically for training and for you know what's unique to Ecuador, things we needed to know on on, on election day. But we also um, attended quite a few auxiliary meetings pre-election day and post-election day. What do you think are the most important things the Arouse campaign learned from this? But not not just the Arouse campaign, but the movement, the Citizens Revolution, the whole philosophy that was brought to the Arouse campaign.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the primary reason at lost is what we've already discussed, how how the playing field was uneven, but one of the other big factors was this kind of uh, schism between CONAI, the Confederation of Indigenous Nationalities of Ecuador, and the Citizens Revolution they'd been at odds for years. And really, there was kind of bad blood. I mean, the the head of CONAI had said he would never even sit down to speak with Rafael Correa. But he was open to speak to Andres Arauz, And he actually endorsed Andres Arauz just about a week before the election. Unfortunately, it was too little too late. And so you had this big block of voters, uh, many of whom are on the left, because, you know, this, this Indigenous uh, Confederation isn't Fully left, but it's kind of a big tent of, of various organizations uh, and but many of them do belong to the left. And it has this this Conai also has a political wing called Pachakutik, and Pachakutik, the candidate came in third in place in the runoff elections that were held earlier this year. Yaku Pérez, he's a guy who talks a big game about eco socialism and women's rights, but he's very much in the neoliberal camp. Uh, he supported Lasso in 2017. He supports this deal with the IMF. Uh, that's really gonna cripple, uh, uh, harm uh, Ecuador's economy over the next decade, perhaps. And so because of this schism, you had a lot of voters vote null or blank. So in Ecuador, voting is compulsory, obligatory, but so voters who don't like any of the candidates either leave their vote blank or they spoil their ballot, which is called the null vote. In the first round of the election, out of 13 million voters, 1.3 million voted either null or blank. In the second round, that number grew to 1.9 million. Uh, so there, you had a 6,000 vote increase in the invalid votes. When the difference between Lasso and Arauz in the second round was 400,000 votes, so they, that also played a, a very key role in this. And you know, I think going forward, uh, the challenge for the left in Ecuador is going to, you know, find a is having finding a way for Conai and and the Citizens' Revolution to work together. But not only that, I think the Citizens' Revolution has to do a lot of work in terms of building its social base in terms of you know training uh, uh, you know le- local leaders to become national leaders and local leaders to be able to organize more efficiently i think there was a, a lack of emphasis on that and, and it, in one some ways we can understand it because correísmo prior to sunday april 11th had won 14 elections in a row so you know they were pretty confident that what they were doing was working but unfortunately You know, everything has changed in the past four years in terms of the social relations in Ecuador because of this austerity. And of course, the pandemic. Uh, We can't talk about these elections without mentioning the pandemic where Ecuador has been one of the worst performers in the world. You know, we walk around the city here uh, and it's really so quiet.
4: Oh, yeah, dead you, is not the right word to use.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's very, mean,
4: very quiet.
1: It, I mean, it's very clear that it's it, there's an economic crisis and the pandemic on top of that, and then people are just you know they don't know what to do. Uh, so it, it's very lots of challenges that Ecuador faces right now.
4: A couple, there's two things I want to just interject for the audience, just technical things about the elections that are unique and kind of a curiosity from those of us from the states. Um, you mentioned that uh, voting is compulsory. So by law, people do have to vote. And um, elections are held on Sunday so that people can com- conform to the law. Six, You can start voting as a 16-year-old. 16, 16, 17, until your 18th birthday, you can participate in the elections. It's optional. But once you are legally 18, you are um, a full adult under the law and you are required to vote. And also, uh, there is a large participation of Ecuadorians living in the diaspora. They vote. They are also um, allowed to hold a seat in the national assembly, so that so they can not just vote, but they can participate in the government. Living in the diaspora, so those are two really unique things to Ecuador that I found really uh, compelling and very encouraging to get young people to start voting at 16 i thought that was a really um, fascinating way to start pulling people into the to the process
1: yeah absolutely and i, and I do think it's great that that migrants have a, are going to have a say in in their national assembly uh, another curious thing is that they split the voting into kind of men and women so you go into a polling center and then the polling tables themselves are either reserved for men or women and there's kind of a they you know each split up into different lines and we asked several people why. And the main reason seems to be that this way women can feel more comfortable voting because, you know, that way you prevent men from, you know, being kind of aggressive or harassing them in line and kind of intimidating them into voting for a certain candidate. Uh, so for us, it was kind of unique, but, but I think the people of Ecuador really uh, support that
4: so uh, let's um why don't we wrap up with talking about what sunday's election results could possibly mean for the region and then also in one of our auxiliary meetings with the consul general uh, with venezuela we kind of had a debrief yesterday and the um the, we talked about the asia pacific rim and as being um of what the results of sunday's elections how they will affect the asia pacific rim and i still you know foolishly Sitting principally having lived in California, look, you know, west across the Pacific and think, well, the Asia-Pacific Rim is China, Japan, you know, but of course the Asia-Pacific Rim is California and Chile also. And we have elections, presidential elections in Chile. (laughs) So so let's talk a little bit about the, the potential regional repercussions of Sunday's results.
1: Yeah, I mean, it would be the America's Pacific Rim in this case. Yeah,
4: exactly. Yeah, that's correct.
1: (laughs) And so, yeah, I I mean, it's, it's... Andres Arauz had made it clear that if he were to win, he was going to re uh, re Ecuador into UNASUR, the Union of South American Nations, and into CELAC, the Community of Latin American and Caribbean States, which are two multilateral organizations that are really aimed to serve as a counterweight to the OAS, the Organization of American States. The OAS can only really be understood as a tool of the the State Department uh, as a way for the the U.S. to get its way in, in all of the hemisphere. And so the CELAC was created specifically to counter that. And UNESUR was created to, to serve as kind of the, the starting point for greater South American integration. It was kind of the, the, the idea was for South America to become almost like the EU, uh, slightly differently organized, of course. And then when Moreno came into power, he withdraws Ecuador from UNESUR. Unfortunately, the headquarters of UNESUR is in Ecuador. So the, the organization took a big hit. And what we heard from uh, an expert here was that if UNESUR had still been you know, going strong, when the pandemic hit it would have saved thousands of lives throughout South America because the governments would have been able to coordinate would have been able to coordinate health policies together and the governments would have been able to form a block to buy vaccines together which would have been very important here in Ecuador they're just starting the vaccines there's actually several scandals about vaccines right now uh, so unfortunately, the, you know, this decline in UNESCO has actually caused deaths, and Lasso is not going to return to UNESCO. In fact, Lasso is going to continue this policy of uh, attempted regime change in Venezuela. One of the first people to congratulate him was the so-called interim president of Venezuela, Juan Guaidó, and Lasso kind of responded and invited him to his inauguration. And in terms of the Pacific, I think, you know, uh, this is kind of a plan by the United States to, to have this kind of a, a free trade area all, all along the Pacific coast. And so Ecuador is now firmly in the camp that will, will very likely sign this free trade agreement. Uh, of course, Colombia, and then next year or this year rather, we have uh, upcoming elections in Peru and Chile, and so those are going to be very key in, geopolitically to see what happens. Uh, I think if you know some of the sail, the wind was taken out of the sails of the kind of the, the resurgence, of the pink tide. The pink tide refers to this period in the early 2000s when you had progressive government after progressive government take power throughout Latin America then it kind of died away in the 2010s in part because of US pressure and and coups of course and, and with the Bolivian elections last year we thought we would see a resurgence of the pig tide Ecuador the loss here now kind of you know makes that a little harder to achieve but of course we have uh, Lula in Brazil, most likely being the candidate next year, and other left-wing candidates in many other countries. So a lot, to, a lot's gonna be at stake in the next uh, elections here in South America.
4: Well, we've got a lot of work to do in, in helping lift these voices and people looking to change and doing something more socially constructive with their economies and their governments. On the Pacific Rim, we also have Nicaragua presidential elections in, um, in November. So Nicaragua, Chile, Brazil, uh, who else in November? Honduras. <laughs> so, um, so a lot, a lot. Uh, we could be looking at a really quite different and exciting um, region by the end of this year.
1: Yeah, yeah. Thank you for listening to Code Pink Radio, presented by WBAI in New York City and WPFW in Washington D.C.
0: Bin Laden, you think they're foes, they're in business together. Danny Bush knows the Carlisle Group since years before. Been raking in billions and itching for more. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say cold war, we say cold pink. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say cold war, we say cold pink, code